Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, we're talking to Bill Keller, the founding editor-in-chief of The Marshall Project and former executive editor of The New York Times. I called Bill for two reasons, the first being that last week he released his latest book called What's Prison For? The book draws on extensive original reporting to explore what happens inside prisons in the U.S. and abroad and what we might be getting wrong, especially in journalism, when we talk about prison reform. Bill is so interesting because his career arc is broad and far-reaching. Not only is he an expert on criminal justice, which we talk about in the interview, but before that stint in his career, he was focused on an entirely different topic, which was Russia. This is the second part of our conversation. Bill won a Pulitzer in 1989 for his reporting on the Cold War as the New York Times Moscow correspondent. In that capacity, he intimately witnessed the final years of the Soviet Union and saw how Gorbachev loosened the reins on the press and information, something Putin has harshly reversed. He came home, and years later, in the wake of 9-11, he penned a piece for the Times Magazine about a nuclear strike on Manhattan and what that would look like. It's a piece that terrified me then and I still think about today. Um, And it surfaced in my mind as we were having this conversation and as the news out of Russia and Ukraine increasingly focuses on the nuclear threat. So I wanted to ask Keller from his experience how scared he is about all of this and how scared we should be. And also to explore what journalists are supposed to do in reporting on something so massive about which there is a void of information. Here's the interview. Bill, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I've got so much to talk to you about, but let's start with the book. Uh, It's called What's Prison For by Columbia Global Reports. You know, one way into this, I think, is to look at the last few weeks on, on at Biden's pardoning of low-level marijuana offenders. I'm curious whether you think that that could prompt a broader rethink in response to your question in the book, "What Prison Is For." How did how did you how did you see that news? I think his announcement about the marijuana bill is not the beginning of a of something, but it's part of something. But as a gesture or a symbol, it it's meaningful. It's also a sign that Biden is sort of paying his penance for having been part of the bipartisan law and order festival of the 90s. I mean, the 94 Crime Act had all sorts of effects, Uh including mandatory minimum sentences Mm -hmm. galore and abolishing Pell Grants for incarcerated students and things like that. I mean, he was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee when when that bill went through, and he was not talking about prison reform then. Yeah, let's pause on that. But let me just lay the groundwork on the argument in the book. You talk about um, the crime bill and this absurd and immoral surge in the U.S. uh, prison population compared to everywhere else in the world. So what is the answer to this question right now, 2022 in America, as a country and as a community, what do we see prisons for? What is their purpose, do you think? I usually answer that by throwing out a couple of numbers. One of them is 95%, which is the proportion of people who are incarcerated who are sooner or later going to be released, which leads to the question of what do you, what kind of people do you want to set free? I mean, do you want them to be brutalized and lacking in any marketable skills and stigmatized, or do you want people who can be neighbors and citizens? 
that question sort of answers itself. I do dwell in the book a fair amount on Norway and Germany and the other Scandinavian countries and uh, the philosophy being that, yes, prisons are for punishment, but the punishment is your loss of freedom. Yes, you lose your freedom for X number of years, but you don't learn your, lose your right to not be raped in the shower. You don't lose your right to vote. I don't see why we can't emulate Norway and Germany. Uh-huh. You do in the book talk to people in prison, and you do talk to corrections officers, uh, which I thought was, I thought that chapter was super interesting. Um, give us, I mean, what, if one of the complaints about media is that they don't listen enough to people in prison, what's a practical, pragmatic bit of advice? Like if you, how do you, how hard is it to, to find people to talk to? Like, how did you go about that? Or were these people that you had known for years? One of the best ways to talk to, to locate incarcerated people to talk to is through formerly incarcerated people. You often find that they keep in touch with their cellmates and they can, you know, give you an idea how to communicate. Of course, communications are strictly censored and regulated, but there are ways around that. I I know a couple of guys inside who formed relationships with women outside and they'll use their phone privileges to call up and dictate a story, dictate information to be passed on to a reporter. It's complicated because they're in a vulnerable position, vulnerable not only to the people who run the prison, but to their fellow inmates. If they are caught saying something that somebody takes offense at, they have nowhere to go hide. You know, again, you have to be protective of the ones who are still behind bars um, because they're taking serious risks. So one of the reasons this book was so interesting to me was, you know, you you had had this storied journalism career around the world, which I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about in a second. But you had run The New York Times and you were approached to run The Marshall Project, which focuses on these issues. And you say in the beginning of the book, you, you really knew almost nothing about this world. What do you think was your biggest misconception going in? Because it could speak to what we want to get to in a second, which is the general media misconceptions about prison? Yeah, I, I think I, if you had asked me before I had done any studying what the purpose of prison was, I would have said, like most people, well, you do the crime, you do the time. There, some of these people are horrible people and they should be locked up for our safety. Uh, I probably would have been sympathetic to the argument of that rehabilitation is, is a socially valuable service for prisons to provide. I wouldn't have, wouldn't have leaned as heavily in that direction as I do now. But I should back up a second um, and just make one point that's maybe slightly off tangent. But one of the reviewers of my book referred to me as an opti- surprisingly optimistic. And I tend to recoil from that, from that notion because the prison system is this great kind of catchment of, of all the poisons of society, the poverty and violence and bad education system, bad housing. All of those problems flow into the prison system as if it were sort of a sewer. And I don't see a way to really qualitatively reform the prison system without making some headway in reforming the conditions that, that help bring people into prison. Uh-huh. And what do you make of the, of the, of the coverage? I mean, the, Martha, the Marshall Project has spent some time advocating for people to be more careful about language that they use. It seems to me that there's still a lot of laziness and not a lot of uniformity across media and how people write about this stuff? How do you think about it? Well, I mean, first of all, we have to acknowledge that journalists have 
at times been part of the problem, sensational coverage of the most lurid crimes, the perp walks staged for our benefit. I sense that there has been a shift overall. I do think that maybe starting around the time of Ferguson and a series of viral videos of black men being killed by white police officers shifted the focus. Certainly the major newspapers, the major networks, and some of the newer participants in journalism, Marshall Project, ProPublica, Reveal. Yeah, I, I sort of agree with you. I mean, I think there's the there's this term that you're seeing more and more used now, copaganda, which is, you know, taking the word of police um, first. Um, and I think there is a general acceptance in the media that that is that's just a framing that we need to avoid. Let me switch gears for a second. I have to ask you about Russia. You reported for the Times from the Moscow Bureau. You won a Pulitzer for international reporting for your coverage of the Soviet Union. What do you make of what's happening in Ukraine, and and what do you where where, where do you see this going? You know, I covered the final years of the Cold War, and after decades of pretty much absolute state control of information, we had a freedom that was surprising under Gorbachev. And the public became less fearful, and the Soviet Union came apart like Humpty Dumpty. And it's weird that 30 years later, Putin's trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It feels like a throwback to the Soviet times. The big difference is that it's a lot harder to control social media than television. Putin is trying. Another thing that I found fascinating is that they've allowed the pro-war faction to publicly criticize Putin for being too weak in Ukraine. Gorbachev had a similar right-wing opposition. I think just to back off and talk about the coverage of Ukraine, I think it's been exceptionally good, brave, and smart. I agree with you that I think that the reporting has been fantastic. I do think that when it comes to questions about what is Putin going to do next, is he going to drop a nuke, there's a lot of that, which I think is unhelpful because nobody knows the answer to any of that. The, after the war started in February, there was this round of fantastic reporting, and then it sort of like hit a bit of a lull, and then this, the speculation really sort of, the armchair generalizing sort of really took off again. And then now I think it's back to sort of more on-the-ground stuff. That, that was my take on it. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair criticism. I've spent a lot of time browsing the, the cable news shows, particularly when Ukraine seemed to be beating back the the armed might of the Russian military. And I, I had moments when it drove me crazy that, you know, on CNN, there'd be a panel of six people trying to outdo each other in predicting the future. Yeah. But they had a lot of time to fill. They had a lot of time to fill, exactly. Um, I got to tell you, um, you wrote probably the piece that terrified me more than any piece of journalism I've read. The piece that ran in 2002 about um, a nuclear bomb. You had details on what... Uh, strike in Manhattan would look like. I mean, granted, at the time, we were all terrified in general. There was a visceral feel then. Um, I I feel sort of brought back to that time right now. Do you feel the same way, or or do you have that visceral feel that you had in 2002? Yes, uh, I do have a bit of that. Yeah, a a tactical nuke in the Donbass doesn't scare me as much as a tactical nuke in the tunnel under, under New York City. But that's because of who I am and where I live. I mean, I think using nukes would be a serious, colossal misjudgment on Putin's part. 
but it wouldn't be the first serious colossal misjudgment that he's made. You know, the answer to whether or not we should be scared of the nuclear option depends on stuff that's in, in his head and we can't know. It, it's kind of an academic question whether he might use a nuke or not use a nuke, which is why I share your frustration at people trying to speculate about what is he up to, but I think you have to do that. Certainly the intelligence agencies are doing it. So to wrap up, I mean, you go from Russia to nukes to running a place like the New York Times to tackling you know, the U.S. prison system and criminal justice. And um, all of these are huge tectonic problems and issues that you sort of have thought through suggests a certain amount of attention deficit disorder, too. <laughs> well, I had two questions. One was, do you, is there an, another entirely different topic that you're interested in? And two, is there, in your mind, is, does all this sort of tie together somehow? Y- yeah. I mean, well, the other story that I follow voraciously is the condition of our democracy, which... Ten years ago, would have seemed like an odd thing to be spending so much attention on. I mean, we occasionally stumble, but we keep on keeping on. And I have to say that the you know the Trump years really gave me an acute sense of anxiety about how our democracy works and the freedoms it guarantees. And that's not in the it's not an easy thing for for the media to take on. I mean, it's almost as speculative as what's in Putin's head. But is that a th- is that a through line? I mean, is freedom and individual freedom and the, the freedom of the country is that a, that's a sort of through line here? Yeah, I, I, I hadn't particularly thought of it that way, but I think it is. Bill, it was great to talk to you. Well, thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Bill. So what I wanted to do now is turn to the CJR newsroom to talk about what Keller said. We have these amazing conversations every day at CJR about the news and about like what's going on in the world and how journalism should respond to it. And it has often struck me in these podcast conversations that I would love to bring in my colleagues and have them sort of chew over what we just heard. So I'm thrilled to be joined by Mike Laws and Amanda Derrick from CJR to talk about what Bill said, especially his comments about Russia, which I thought were particularly interesting. We haven't done this before, sort of sit around with microphones, but it's fun to see you. It is. So what did you make of, I mean, the thing that stuck out to me was first Bill saying this moment in time in our history was scary to him. What did you make of that part of the conversation? In this time where, if you look at the doomsday clock, that the and I know we've covered the the bulletin of the atomic scientists, but the the doomsday clock is now eighty seconds from midnight, something like that. So there's there there really is an atmosphere of I don't know if you want to call it fear mongering, but certainly fear about the big one that maybe we haven't seen since the Cold War. But how much of that is sort of rank speculation, and how much is justified is I think always up in the air. And just to give an example of that, the, there's an incident that Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the, the historian, called not only the most dangerous moment of the Cold War, it was the most dangerous moment in human history. This happened in 1962, and we in the West didn't know about it until, I think, 2002, maybe the late 90s. And it, it involved a, a 
submarine in the uh, the, the Caribbean or, or near Cuba at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were really, really close to to an incident that set off nuclear war that we wouldn't have known about. You know, we we didn't know until after I guess Glasnost. So yeah, I'm always just sort of wary of these. You'll see them occasionally, even in the, in the New York Times or maybe the New Yorker. I'm thinking of these these pieces, like sort of forecasting what a bomb dropped on Manhattan would look like. And Keller mm-hmm. wrote a piece like that in the Times Magazine. I remember reading it was in 2002, right after 9/11. The bomb was supposed to be was going to be dropped at Rockefeller Center. It was terrifying. Yeah. I wonder if there's a kind of like so he's of a certain age. He was a child of the Cold War. Right. I mean, he grew up with seeped in this fear. And I'm more at the tail end of that Mm -hmm. period. But I definitely also remember a fear of uh, that we could all die in uh, nuclear war. And I do think that that's affecting like if you read like a lot of the people who are banging this drum the hardest are old, you know, of that generation. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious about like whether that's how that's inflected the coverage and um, how we're supposed to read all this stuff. I mean, I, the, uh, we're energized by this, right? Like we're united by this. There's, I mean, there's a lot that's been said about the nostalgia for the Cold War in Russia and how it has enabled Putin's rise, mm-hmm. right? Like the world was a, a simpler place for them in terms of black and white. Yeah, the good guys, common enemy. The, yeah. I mean, not to mention the fact that under a regime like that, there's never any bad news, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the, paper, the, paper, the paper always mm-hmm. leads with good news. But we are, I, I think we're all energized by this kind of fear and standoff that kind of clarifies where the lines lie between us and them. I would say that the armchair speculation that both Bill and Mike have touched on is kind of a natural endpoint. I mean, to me, it really is a conundrum that I don't know the answer to. Like, because Keller was critical of these armchair pundits. There's a lot of them on cable. We've I've written about like how like I don't want to see people speculate on what's going to happen. But you can't ignore that this is there's real facts behind this. For example, you know, the Russians did go to the U.N. Security Council and make this claim that appears to be made up about. The, the, dirty fact, bomb. the fact that the Ukrainians are going to um, detonate a dirty bomb. Right. And everyone is like, no, 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 that's not true. And you also had Biden say, I've been spending a lot of my day talking about this. And it was very clear that there's it's very clear that the that the Western governments, the U.S., the U.K., France are on like heightened alert right now. They're all they're all in phone calls. They're all talking about there's something that's spooked them. So this is real. Um, but how do you how do you cover this and and like how do you avoid getting into like fear porn? Right. I mean, first of all, the the dirty bomb claim can't help but but evoke memories of the the you know the 2002 or 2003 fears in this country mm-hmm. that that would happen, uh, which it ultimately you mean didn't, weapons of which, mass destruction? Yeah, and, yeah. and sort of the 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 drumbeat for war in the Middle East. But yeah, it's a good question. I don't know that there's a great answer to that because these are, you know, legitimate fears. But th- there's also a sector of the media that that's not using this as a rallying cry or a, you know a common enemy type type sentiment, and that's the the Alex Jones type people who you know are sort of twisting this to their ends and are certain that Armageddon's around the corner, and and you know. 
really taking it to, to strange places like that, you know, the Christians need to retake Jerusalem before this happens because this oh, is really? the end times. Yeah, so it's, I think, um, as far as speculation, this, this is sort of better confined to fiction. You know, we get we get mm. great works at times like these. We get Darkness at Noon or uh, On the Beach or Ice Nine and Cat's Cradle, Vonnegut, you know. So I, I wonder if there's a wave of that coming. Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, Dr. Strangelove, Red Alert, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think, you know, part of the way that we can deal this, with this, obviously we're going to need experts to come on and tell us how this could play out. I mean, I think it's part of the problem is going to be style, um, to do it with some rigor and with precise language. That'll make a difference because, of course, we have to hear what could be playing out. Yeah, and, and I think more qualification of who qualifies as an expert now. I mean, right. you know, I think that may have been slightly easier um, at the, the height of the Cold War before this sort of balkanization of, of media outlets, you know, Um so, yeah. Well, ne- next week, let's talk about the circus or something. <laughs> <laughs> World Series. We'll have baseball to talk about. Thank you both for coming. Thank you for having us.